On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about Mars now that we, well, we, NASA, we'll take credit, now that we have landed a rover on that planet. What's next? What are we hoping to learn? We're also going to talk about a green cemetery that Hamilton is apparently going to get, which means, well, it's different from your typical cemetery, and we'll explain how some people are going to think this is fantastic. Others, I don't know. But it's coming, and it will soon be an option for people around here. We're also going to talk about Tiger Woods, a car accident on Tuesday. Initial reports were very frightening, still serious, but things are a little clearer now, it seems. Uh, What does this mean, though, going forward for him and for golf? We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You probably heard this. You probably saw the video. Surely you've seen the pictures. Surely you've heard something about the fact that NASA just landed a rover on Mars, which is very cool. I mean, it is, it is, it's very cool. The thing was called, the thing is, it survived. It's called Perseverance, which is an appropriate name. When you consider that it had to travel 472 million kilometers over seven months to get there. It's a long way, seven months of waiting and waiting and waiting and finally get there. Well, now that it's there and it made it and it landed and it didn't blow up and it didn't crash and it it went as close to perfect, you would think, as it could have. What now? Let me bring in Dr. Jesse Rogerson. He's an astrophysicist and an assistant professor at York University. Jesse, how are you today? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, no, I love having you on here. We love it every time we can talk a little bit of space. Uh, now, although I must say, when I saw the pictures and the video of this landing, maybe I'm not space enough because the first thing I thought when I saw it was not, wow, they made it. It was, holy cow, those images, those pictures are unbelievably clear. I started thinking, imagine <laughs> what the moon landing would have looked like if we did it today. That is, you know what, I think about that often. Um, you, you look at the, the coverage of the moon landing, um, all, well, all of the landings that happened in the 60s and the 70s, and, and like it's, it's wonderful to watch, and, and you, you can really feel the excitement of the astronauts, and you can, you can hear them joking around with each other and, and falling all over the, the lunar landscape, and the images they send back are great, but it's 60s technology. It's, it's 70s technology that's there. And, and when we send these images back now from, from Mars or from, we have some satellites at, uh, at the moon or we even other countries like the, um, the Chinese and, and, um, and others have landers on the surface of the moon, the images that they send back are crystal clear. Like we've come so far uh, from, in our photographic and um, you know, documentation technology. So now that we have, and this rover that just landed, Perseverance, this is like the most complex rover that has ever been sent out into space. It, it, they took 10 years to build it. it um, you know, thousands of engineers, thousands of people hours of work to, to put it together. Um, it's not surprising, but it's also exciting when you see these images and it, it's HD quality. It looks like a, a, a video you shot with your phone because that's the kind of technology we have now. That's what we're sending out into, the, into other places. And I especially love... If you, there's lots of images that you can see today, but they put a video together of the whole landing sequence. Did you see the video of the landing sequence? Yes. Yes. Oh man. The, like, especially the, the one view looking up at the parachute deployment, that just looks like a video of here on earth, looking up at a weirdly colored sky of a parachute deploying. And then there's the, the image of the rover being lowered down through its sky crane down onto the surface. It looks like you shot it with your phone or with a, a decent camera. It's, it's just it's wonderful. And it gives me chills. I, I look at these videos and I'm like, wow, that's, 
that's a whole alien planet, HD quality. You know, it makes me want to reach out and touch it. Does it, when you see those images and, you know, Mars is the red planet and the ground is reddish, it looks like a clay. When you see those images so clearly, does it look like what you expected it to look like? Uh, yes. I mean, it's still, there's still the feeling of um, surrealness. So when I, when I look at these images, like I, I, I look at Mars images all the time. And so I'm used to it, but I still have that, that feeling in the back of my brain. Like this, this isn't normal. You know what I mean? It's that off feeling. And that's the surrealness of an alien landscape. And Mars is really good at doing this to you because it's surprising how similar Mars looks to various places on earth. Like it looks like Arizona or somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Arizona is a perfect example of how, how similar it looks. So you have these, you have the, the dirt, um, sort of fine grain stuff. You have bigger rocks. You have what look like dried up riverbeds, like literal clays and cracked, cracked clays. It looks very similar, but if you look just, if you, at a quick glance, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, it's kind of like earth. But if you look a little bit longer, then that's where that surrealness creeps in and that alienness uh, creeps mm. in. Like, for instance, the color of the sky is weird. Um, it's very different than our bright blue sky. It's this sort of hazy, pale um, hue that you would see. Um, and, and so those kinds of things and, and the amount of light that's getting there, the incident light that you get is kind of dimmer than you would expect. Uh, so these things are sort of hanging in the back of your brain. And even for someone like myself or the, or even, um, I imagine for the engineers that worked on the project, um, they still notice these things and, and have that feeling of surrealness. Okay. So I, I, I did think about that, about the pictures first, and I hate to admit it cause it probably says <laughs> something, but, but it really, it was amazing. But then I did think, wow, they made it, which is, as I said in the introduction, before I brought you on here, you're talking about sending a rocket for seven months. I think it's 472 or something million kilometers aiming for this tiny dot so far away. And the fact that they hit it and landed it and it <laughs> slowed from 12,000 kilometers an hour or something down to 20 to land. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It makes my head hurt to think about it. I, it, I, and you know what? Same here. Um, uh, it's, it's a monumental task. It's not something that you can just sit down and plan out in a day, right? This is, this is people's careers. Like a good chunk of a peop- of a person's career is dedicated to making this happen. And so you start, yeah, with the launch from, from earth that happened back in, in the summer in August when the, there was a condition, uh, um, a window of time that was really favorable for launches to Mars, which is why the Chinese also did it. And the United Arab Emirates also launched something to Mars at the same time. And so it, it has to, once you let it go, once it leaves earth, you can't fix it anymore. You can't right. send a repair crew. It's got to make that seven month journey through the, the vastness of space all by itself. And then it's got to go through this, what they call the seven minutes of terror, which is to get from the top of the atmosphere to the ground without destroying the, 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 the robot. Again, so many things need to go right. And it takes, it takes so much effort to make sure everything goes right. Truly they test remarkable. this thing over and over and over again to make sure it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And they, they prove their skill once again. They did yeah, it with the no Curiosity kidding. rover and they did it with the Perseverance rover. Now that it's there, though, they didn't just send it there for the pictures of it landing. <laughs> They've sent it there to do things. What do we? What do we hope? What can we learn that's of value to us that it could do there and tell us about Mars? Oh my gosh, where to start? Well, the the number one goal of this rover, the Perseverance rover, it was sent to Mars with a specific question to answer, 
And that answer, or sorry, that question to be answered is, was there ever any life of any kind on Mars in the past? So that's a pretty big question, because the, the finding of life in a place other than Earth would completely change our understanding of how life, how life gets started, how life forms, how life evolves through time. Uh, we would have to ask, if we, if we were ever to find evident, evidence of life beyond Earth, we'd have to ask questions like, is it the same life as here on Earth? Is it a different kind of life that you would find on Earth? And if you look out into the solar system, all the amazing places that are out there, there's moons and there's planets and there's comets and there's asteroids, you, if you're going to try and ask this question, question and answer it, you've got to pick some most likely scenario places. Where would you go first to look, basically? And Mars is a really, really good candidate because the, it looks like in all the work that has been done with Mars over the past, over the few decades that they've been working on Mars, is that it looks like in the distant past, so we're talking about two or three billion years ago, that the surface of Mars had liquid water flowing on the surface. So we're talking lakes, we're talking rivers, we're talking oceans. You, we, we can see coastlines, uh, like dried up coastlines and dried up riverbeds, and the rocks suggest water. And moreover, it's not just that there was water on the surface, but the, the atmosphere was warmer and thicker, which would all of which points to conditions that would be conducive to life. Now, that doesn't mean that life has been ever found there, but the conditions of Mars in the past may have been favorable for life. And so the next natural question is, can we find any evidence of that? And so that is exactly what Perseverance has been sent there to do. And it is the first time that a rover has been sent with that specific goal uh, to, to actually try and answer if there was life on another planet. We could talk about that for the next couple hours and I wish we could, but I, I did want to get to one other thing though. And so I'm going to leave that one alone for just a second. Cause that, that's, that's a great basis for what it's doing so people can understand. But for a long time, going back a few years, there was a, a private plan to send people to Mars and there's always been the talk of sending people there next or at some point. But when you go back to the numbers that we talked about, 472 million kilometers and seven months and uh, when you see what it really takes, does it make it almost too daunting to say, you know, it's just really not feasible? That would essentially be all the time we've been locked up in this COVID lockdown, spend that in a little tin can floating in space. You'd go insane before you even got there. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I think that um, it, we've already proven that it's possible to last that long in a little tin can because there's been multiple missions to the International Space Station that have been longer than six months. They've been missions that have That's lasted true. a year. That's true. And now there's a difference there. And the difference is that you can do live conversations with Earth from the ISS. But if you're flying to Mars, you can't do a live conversation. Um, you have to pre-record and then send it off in a, in a, because the communication delay, because the distance is so big. But it, it is wholly different. Like, even though you're spending seven months in a tin can flying there, um, once you get there, there's no, there's no immediate return so you need to be prepared for health emergencies. You need to be prepared for um, mental health emergencies. Um, and For not coming home at all anyway? And Sorry? For not coming home at all anyway. It would be a one-way trip still, right? Um, well, if you're going to send people there, uh, the, all plans would suggest that you'd want to send them back. So there are, there, way back there was this, um, this idea to send a whole bunch of people on a one-way trip. Right. Um, th that's an unlikely scenario the most likely scenario will be a return mission. And like if NASA sends people 
and they're they're planning to do it in the I don't know, next 10 to 15 years or so, they would have a, a return mission built in. So it would probably be about um, a three-ish long year mission with the seven months flying there, some time on the ground, and then seven months flying back. Wow. It is, um, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it is. dedicated astronauts. <laughs> well, and, and I don't know that you could do it with one or two people because of the possibility that something could go wrong. And, you know, you can't send two people and they both, die or something horrible happens on the way and then you've got nobody. So, you know, now you got to have to beat your ship, I guess, and more people. I mean, it's, it's, it is a truly daunting idea. Although as we've seen, it, it is possible to get something there and land it on the surface of Mars. If nothing else, that's what we've, that's what we've learned from this, I guess, so far that it is yeah, possible the, to do that. Exactly. And the infrastructure, you're right. You're like, you're nailing it on the head. The infrastructure to get to Mars is, is an order of magnitude bigger than the infrastructure to say, get to the moon. Um, it, it requires, you need you need supplies on the ground already. You need um, an ability to set up a habitat for long duration. You need um, a return scenario. You need to be able to get up off the planet, which has a larger gravity than than the moon does. Um, you you need to think about all of these things. How do you feed someone for for three years? How do yeah, you exactly. fuel a ship? All of these questions need to be answered. But I I definitely know that we are up to that challenge. Um, you know. Super daunting things uh, require super in, uh, incredible ingenuity to solve them. And and we've and seen they can do it. As I say, we've seen it. this week they yeah. can do it. Dr. Jesse Rogerson, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We learned, we, and this has actually been going on for a little while that we've been working towards this, but we've learned in the last week or two, maybe even a little less than that, that Hamilton is going to be or is planning to open a green cemetery. A green cemetery doesn't just mean the grass is green. Green, like environmental green. It's going to be an 8,400 8, square meter section of the Mount Hamilton Cemetery up on Rymel Road. And it is going to be a green cemetery. But what does that mean? Because when we bury people, don't they always, well, decompose? Let's be honest. That's what happens. Uh, is that not the whole ashes to ashes, dust to dust thing? Is that not green? Well, let's find out what a green cemetery is. Susan Greer is the executive director of the Natural Burial Association. She joins us now. Uh, Susan, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Congratulations to Hamilton. This is great. Well, okay. So the idea, let, let's go through this because I, I think a lot of people would have some idea what we're talking about, but maybe not. The, the idea here is that you can be buried more simply and more environmentally responsibly, I guess. Is that the, the simple form it, of it? Exactly. There's really just more or less four tenants. Two of them are tenants that um, apply to what happens in the ground, and that is the person is not embalmed, and they are buried in a biodegradable, say a pine casket or a shroud made of natural fabric. So that's what happens below the ground. And of course, there's no vault. A lot of the the conventional cemeteries that we see have bylaws insisting on a concrete vault that surrounds the casket. What what really makes it natural burial is is not those components that are happening below the ground that I've just described, but on top, there's uh, the land is restored to its natural habitat. That's what's, if it's really truly a natural burial ground, um, they pull out the invasive species, they plant indigenous trees and fauna. So there's that it's truly returned to its natural state. There's 
tall grass and meadow, or sometimes there's natural burial grounds um, in between, you know, wood in a, in a woodlot. So that's important there. And then the other thing is that there are not the um, gravestones that we know that we think of in the conventional burial. Um, typically with a natural burial, there's one communal marker. So everybody's name is there on the same, let's say it's a boulder, for instance, or it could be a really neat artistic wall that of organic you know, material, what have you. Um, sometimes, and I don't know the bylaws specifically for Mount Hamilton, sometimes an a, you know, organic something or other is, is permitted a, a modest marker, like a little stone or something over each. But typically there isn't an individual marker, which people Let's... are okay with because the idea is that whole area, that whole green burial area is in fact their, their kind of plot. Let's go to the part underground for a second, because I think that's the part that, that most people, I mean, it's interesting about the, you know, the natural appearance above, but below, what is not environmentally as responsible about a typical burial? Because a wood casket will eventually dissolve or break down and a body will eventually break down, will it not? And all those other things that you bury, do they not eventually break down? Well, they would after a very long time. You've got the uh, the um, concrete is preventing the natural decomposition. So um, apparently, it's not a very pretty scene. Um, what if it is a conventional burial with the vault and with that casket? For one, you take beautiful hardwood and metal, as opposed to you know a, a biodegradable um, wood material. So. That's a shame, taking all that um, gorgeous wood. And the fabrics that are usually lining it aren't environmentally friendly. If the body is embalmed, it's done with formaldehyde, which is which eventually does dissolve in the ground, but it's very toxic to those um, that are embalming. So that's alarming as well. And then if it's burial of um, cremains, cremated remains, then of course... For cremation, you're using fossil fuel to burn that body. It burns for about two or three hours at somewhere between 800 and 900 degrees Celsius. So obviously that's not good for the environment. So this way, it's really, it's all being done naturally by Mother Nature. There's there's no industrial interference in any way. It's just Mother Nature doing the job that Mother Nature does best. And if you remove those things, I would have to assume then that it would be generally cheaper. Would I be right? Yes, it is cheaper than conventional burial. I mean, every every cemetery sets their own bylaws, and uh, so I can't, you know, I can't comment on what Mount Hamilton wants to do. But no, but to lose the nice coffin and to lose the the uh, oh, embalming yeah. and all the rest, all that money would come out of your cost, which can add up for a for a funeral very quickly. Absolutely, yeah. The plot price I can't speak for, but the materials that would go into conventional burial compared to a natural burial, absolutely, it's a lot less expensive. It's not usually less expensive than cremation, unfortunately. Um, we're going to take a break in a second and I've got a bunch of questions that I want to ask you specific to this, but just before this, um, are there people who, are there people who want to go even beyond what you've described? Are there people who literally want to be just placed into a hole with no shroud, no box, no nothing to be completely, or is that too extreme? (laughs) I, I have, um, I have had one woman ask if she can be laid in the grave 
to die. And, um, oh. but that's, that's unusual. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, because, because I think most people appreciate that it's not really for the dead. This is also for the living. So, right. um, to make for a ceremony, I think people would, were, you know, I think that they want to help by lowering the, sh- the shroud. It's really neat the way with natural burial, people get, the families get much more involved in the actual ritual. So they can be involved in lowering the shroud or the casket and collecting some of the wildflowers or, or cedar boughs to put over or line the grave. It's, um, it's a really neat, it's really neat in that regard. And I think if, um, I just think it would, I think that probably people generally speaking would be a little bit more comfortable if the body was, I would say, yeah, I, I, you know, the other. I, I would but think that very much so. Who, well, who knows, but I, uh, I don't know if I'm ready to go there with the other. I would have to believe that some of the people, if they are inclined to something like this, they are probably, well, some of them are going to be inclined when they when they die, they want their body used for something before it just goes into the ground. And so they're going to be people who say, I would like my body donated to science so it can be helpful. But we know also that if you do donate your body to science and not just for donations, but for you know, in medical school or whatever, they could put some chemicals into you. Can you donate your body to science, have those chemicals put in you and then go into this green cemetery or would that disqualify you? Um, the bylaws would vary from cemetery to cemetery. And people who want to make that nice gesture, the cemeteries are, are they want to accommodate people. But um, I think that would, I think that generally speaking, it would depend what, what, what kind of, um, invasive um, thing that the medical school did with the body. That's what about the, the I mean, I- unfortunately? What about the idea now? Many people um, will have had knee transplants or titanium put in their hips or pacemakers or any number of other things that they don't dissolve or you know do, yeah. do what the normal body would do. What happens with that? You know, it depends. Again, it's like it depends on the bylaws of each cemetery. And um, there is one Ontario where they, where if you have a transplant, like if you have like a hip hip replacement or something, unfortunately, you can't be buried, and it's it's um, it's too bad. But um, and and the pacemakers always come out. But um, in other places, yeah, they they think, well, this is what this person wants, and why would why should they be penalized because they've got a hip transplant? So it's an individual thing. Um, we're, we're trying to work towards getting graves reused in Ontario. It happens all over Europe, and it happens in Quebec. And then what happens, I was talking to a guy in Vancouver who does this, so then you would go back into the grave in, say, 25, 30 years' time, and you might find that hip, and you pull out that hip, and it can go into recycling then. So, so it does often go into a natural burial ground. That was one of the things I was going to ask you about is this is, I mean, 8,400 square meters is not a small area, but depending on how popular this is, it could be very well used, which would mean that it mean, well, not short order, but in time you would use up all the space. Do you go back over then? And I guess you kind of answered that. Do you go back over and I guess by the time you would go back because it's natural, the person would have ashes to ashes and you could probably bury someone else there. Yeah, right now, not in Ontario, but we're working on it. It makes so much sense. 
how long it, let, let's get into the uh, the real nitty gritty of this not to be ghoulish but without oh, all this, this is going well without know. all the stuff without all the embalming and everything how long does yeah. it take for a person who's buried properly to dissolve for lack of a better term um well you know i'm sorry i'm answering lots of questions but it depends and it does it depends on the soil um in quebec they it's generally speaking about 25 years um that long wow in Portugal, where it's a warmer climate, they don't have the freeze, the winter freeze that we would have. They had um, bylaws when they were um, bringing up the bodies within three to five years, but they were discovering that was a little bit too early, so that was posing a problem, too. So um, it all depends on the soil. Uh, a and couple more. What they do in Quebec, they have uh, options. Like, you actually just lease the land, and you can lease it depending on, on, like on the cemetery, but oh. 25 years, 50 years, 75 years, goes like that. All right. Another one. And, and look, we're talking about burying people. Um, it's, there's naturally going to be some of this stuff that is going to be a little off-putting to some folks, but you're burying the bodies, I understand, at least two feet down for good reasons, because you don't want animals smelling anything and digging down to try and get them. I mean, it makes all kinds of sense, even though it may sound a little ghoulish. Have you ever thought though, that if that's the, if that's the thing, if we're saying, if, as long as you bury someone deep enough, it's not going to be a problem and they can decompose and all the rest. Why could we not do this in our backyard? And again, I know it's kind of a weird thing, but as long as it's not posing any problems, has it ever, have you ever asked why we couldn't do that? Um, I, I, I haven't asked the, it's the Bereavement Authority of Ontario that oversees all these things. And I haven't asked because I think that, um, that your home doesn't become a usually permanent to that family, right? Other people go there and they, they really, it's all about the, their respect for the dad. Like, this just, we have a culture that has a great deal of respect for the dad. And if that backyard is suddenly, that person's been buried, that house is sold, somebody else comes along and they're digging them in, lo and behold, there's the bones. That's, <laughs> that's I mean, a that's, good, very good it's, point. It's, all, it's really, um, like the, one of the you all the time when you're talking to like the formal institution of the death care industry in Ontario is dignity, dignity. So they would, they would answer that with using the, the thing, you know, it's the dignity of the body. And that's but a very good allowed. point. Can, or, yeah, but pets, you can bury your pets. So You can. Um, I had I not thought of that. I, I hadn't thought of the idea that you sell your house afterwards and yes, yeah, someone goes to put a pool in and there's, you know, whoever that, yeah, that's an ex- excellent point you just made. And I'd wondered about it because I thought, you know, if you can do it somewhere else, why not that? You just answered the question. So it <laughs> makes all the sense in the world. Uh, Susan Greer with the, uh, Susan Greer is the executive director of the Natural Burial Association. You can find her website, their website. Um, which is naturalburialassociation.ca. Go look it up if you're interested in this. Again, one will a green cemetery is coming to Hamilton if this is something that is of interest to you, for you or your family member. Uh, Susan, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Adam Stanley. He is a golf writer. He is a uh, journalist who covers the game at all different levels all across the country, writes for all kinds of different publications. Because the big story of the day today, of course, uh, we started hearing partway through the day today about a car accident, a serious car accident involving Tiger Woods. Um, Adam, how are you today? I am doing quite well. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for doing this. I'm doing well, although I must say when I first saw the first tweets come out about this, my first thought was, okay, someone's having a lark. And then my second thought, and I don't know if you had the same thing, was that feeling of Kobe-ness that, oh, we have no idea about this, but is this the same thing? Was that what went through your mind when you first heard it? 
it, it was uh, for me, it really was kind of two ends of that spectrum. It was either like, Oh, come on, man. Like there's no way. Or it was like, is, is Tiger Woods dead? Like that literally was what we were, what we were thinking uh, through the afternoon. Now there has been so much speculation and so much back and forth. And we had to weed through a lot of different reports. Uh, and just, you know, half an hour ago, the LA County Sheriff's Department, Fire Department, and the uh, first responder who was first to talk to Tiger Woods finally came out uh, and, and said exactly what had happened and, and what the status is. And it does appear as if it can be a best case scenario situation, which is good because it didn't certainly seem that way earlier on this afternoon. Well, uh, so what is the latest? Because I've been I've been obviously doing the show and haven't heard the latest. So you can you can break some news to us. Last we had heard, his agent had put out a tweet saying he had multiple leg injuries and was in having surgery right then. So that it remains accurate. The 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 best news out of it all is that the the injuries were not life threatening. Uh, it did appear as if speed was was a factor. Uh, there was no indication of uh, Woods being intoxicated in any way, shape, or form. Um, he apparently coming down a bit of a hill. Uh, that road, the area, the, the stretch of road where Tiger Woods' vehicle flipped over for what they said was tens of meters, um, was was um, accident prone. The speed limit was only about 45 miles an hour, but in the past there have been people that come down this hill, take the corner at upwards of 80 miles per hour. So they did say that speed is likely something that could have been uh, an issue, but the officer, the first responder who was first there uh, to speak with Tiger Woods uh, noticed that Tiger was lucid. He asked him a couple questions. Who are you? Uh, where are you? Do you know the time of the day? He answered all of those questions totally fine. Uh, you know, you kind of have half a chuckle because the guy says, what's your name? And Tiger Woods just looks at him and says, I'm Tiger. And then the, the officer's like, oh, wow, yep, this is Tiger Woods. So they just managed to keep Tiger calm. Um, and the jaws of life were not used. They ended up using a, an axe type device to, to break the um, the front glass. They removed Tiger. Uh, it does seem, sound like bro- both of his legs were broken, uh, so he's having surgery there. But the, the biggest takeaway from all of these officers and everything that they said is essentially Tiger Woods is lucky to be alive. Well, for sure. And, and I mean, that's the number one part of the story. The other part, though, and I can't, I can't escape it, is that we do have, I mean, what is it now, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we had not a similar story, but another car accident story involving him. And uh, the other thing besides the Kobe Bryant thought that went through my head is, what happens if there is something else to this? Now, as you say, thankfully, there doesn't seem to be any kind of intoxicants or drinking or drugs or anything like that. The, I don't know that the guy survives a reputation blow if that had happened again so thank goodness that's not the case for him that this is this is merely an accident and the other thing is adam i do think at this point in his life he is a for a long time there he was not a sympathetic guy i don't think in the public eye he still had fans i'm not sure he was a sympathetic character i think when people see him golfing with his son last year not even last year just a few months ago um you know see him becoming a little bit different smiling on the golf course now which he never used to i think he's become a sympathetic character now yeah agreed i think you know he was this larger than life figure for so many years um 
and he was winning in a way that people had never seen before. You know, he may end up falling short of the actual number of majors that Jack Nicholas ended up winning in his career, but the way that he was winning the biggest tournaments on the planet, we had just never seen it. The, the level of dominance was absolutely incredible. He was not just a star, a superstar that transcended golf um, and, and was in popular culture and all of sports and et cetera and et cetera. And then, you know, he, he became a real person. He had, you know, the issues with his wife. He became a father. He, um, you know, hurt himself. He, he had all of these issues away from golf. And every single time he was in the news for something that wasn't how amazing a golfer he was, he became more and more human. And then this documentary came out earlier, uh, I guess it would have been late last year. And, and like you said, you know, he played in a golf tournament with his son and we got to kind of peel back the layers a little bit more about just how proud he is of, of him and, and of his daughter, obviously, who's playing such a high level of soccer back home in Florida too. And you kind of realize that all this time, he's just been a normal person. Just he's been so incredible at something that so many people can't, uh, can't even fathom. So you're right. I think you know, this tragic hero, this more relatable figure, this uh, just more humanized person has definitely come to light more so the last couple of years than, you know, 20 years ago when it was the Tiger Woods show week in and week out on the PGA Tour. Well, and a guy who looks like, when you say human, uh, when he would be winning and back early in his career, I mean, he could be up by the Masters by, how many strokes did he win that one Masters by? 12, 14, 12, whatever yeah. it was? Yeah. Um, and, and still look like he wanted to rip the heads off of everybody. Now, you know, there are moments when you'll see him laughing on the course, which you never, ever, ever saw. Yeah. And, and when you talk about being humanized, it's not just those failures, although I'm sure that contributes to it. He looks like he's a human now as opposed to just a machine. Yeah. I mean, he's doing this, the job, the job of playing golf and, and he was better at doing the job than anybody else on the planet for a very, very long time. But now it seems like there's this job isn't isn't everything anymore. And it's kind of you can't help but smile when Tiger Woods smiles on the golf course because you know so many people just know like how uh laser like he, he was with his focus and his determination. And then he comes on the golf course and a couple of years ago, you know, he was paired with Kevin Na, who who has a reputation for, for walking in his putts super, super yes. early. And Kevin Na did that paired with Tiger and, and Tiger's got this short one foot putt and, and he's like running after his ball during a tournament. And the two of them are laughing and walking off the green together. And you would have not even dreamed about seeing a scenario like that, um, you know, even five years ago. So you're right. When I say the word human, I mean, he, we see his flaws, of course, but we also see uh, that he, he's able to have fun and, and have a laugh on a golf course, just like all of us. We, we're sort of catching ourselves, both of us here, talking a little bit in the past tense. To be clear, for those, if anyone's just tuning in, he's not dead. He's not, the, the injuries that Tiger Woods has suffered, the, the authorities say are not life-threatening. But Adam, I, I think there may be a bit of a, like a Freudian slip there, which is there's an honest mistake. Because when I hear that a guy who's just had back surgery for the nth number of time, he's 45, yeah. and now he's had serious leg injuries. It's a guy who's had leg injuries before. I find it very difficult to picture a scenario in which he comes back as a contending golfer again. I mean, maybe, may, maybe it's doable, but boy, it sounds like this may be, he may play golf again. I just can't with this imagine that he becomes a guy that is a threat on the tour again. 
Yeah, I mean, two two points on that. I've just got Twitter's loading in the the background here on my on my screen as we're chatting, and the latest update is Tiger's injuries include quote a shattered ankle and two leg fractures, one of which is a compound fracture. That's via the Los Angeles Times. So when you think about to your point exactly, he was already on this road to recovery after having a back surgery a few weeks ago uh, in innumerable amount of surgeries and procedures. And now he has, you know, this on, on top of all of that, not to mention the metal, mental hurdle uh, to get over from flipping your car uh, as, as much as he did and, and, and getting over the shock and the trauma of all of that. So, you know, we say that it, Tiger Woods was, you know, one of the greatest golfers of all time. And again, we are talking about Tiger Woods here. So, Mid-40s, maybe he gets to his late 40s and he wins again somehow, some way on the PGA Tour. I guess that shouldn't shock us because of everything that he's done already in his life and up to this point. Um, but I think that this has a, a very, this is a very good time in his life if this was the end. Uh, what, what a ride it's been uh, up to this point. And if he decides to keep going and recover and come back and do this all over again and play golf and try to win, then we'll be better for it. But if we, if we don't have any more Tiger Woods, then I think the game is in a great place. And, um, you know, it's, it's been awesome to watch. Well, you know, who's really upset by this? I mean, obviously this is, you know, I'm sure Tiger Woods is very upset by this and his family is very upset by this and his fans are upset by this. And I know you talked to some, uh, some other golfers today who were expressing how shocked and upset they were by this, but my goodness, the PGA tour, I mean, he has been the franchise. He has been the cash box and the, you know, the ATM for them. Every single golfer on tour is making infinitely more money today because yeah. of the influence Tiger Woods has brought to the game. Uh, you know, the PGA tour, I don't know that they've fully made a plan for post Tiger Woods yet and how they keep all the fans who are just Tiger Woods fans engaged in the game. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would agree with that because for as much as, you know, the, the golf Twitter sphere and um, you know, just social media in general, love somebody like Max Homa you know, if he was, uh, you know, if he was sitting at the bar at the Ancaster Mill, I don't know how many people would be able to identify Max. Right? Zero. 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 Um, even, even Rory McIlroy, I mean, global superstar, magical in the press room, uh, dominating on the golf course, family man now, uh, a dream in the, as much of a dream in the office as he is uh, on the golf course. Again, if he's sitting at the bar at the Ancaster Mill, maybe we've got a small handful of people who knows who he is. Maybe 50% on a good day. Yeah. Yeah. Every single person would know who he is. And to your point about the PGA tour, you know, Almost everyone on the PGA Tour has been now is, is inspired, has been inspired to be there because of Tiger Woods. But who is, you know, who's coming next? Well, we've got this collective of golfers who are trying to uh, to take the sport into into the next generation, into the post-Tiger generation. And and don't get me wrong, people like Max Homa, Ricky Fowler, Rory McIlroy, uh, Dustin Johnson, even for the way that he's doing things, Bryson DeChambeau, Brooke Henderson on on the women's side, like. They're doing their best, and there are a big part of junior golf uh, fanatics and young people, young girls, young boys who are taking up the game because of those people who I mentioned. But a entire generation to pick up golf and be interested in it, I mean, yeah, there, there's nobody like Tiger, and until somebody comes along and, and does the 
the, the same kind of dominance like we saw with Tiger, we, we won't really be getting that anytime soon. But do you think, and we only have a couple minutes left, do you think that that what made him what he was, what he is, is entirely golf? Because I don't, I, and I don't know what it is. I, I can't really quantify what the extra is because we just talked about it. He didn't have yeah. this glowing personality all the time. He was scowling more often than not. He was winning. But even if you get a guy like DeChambeau who goes out and wins eight tournaments in a row, I don't get the sense that he is the new Tiger Woods. He's just a golfer who's doing really well. I don't know what that thing was that Tiger Woods had that made him him. I think the the big thing is that anyone who does it now is just going to be the next Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods was doing it, we had just never seen anything like it. It came along at the same time as, you know, as the internet, it came along at the same time as clubs turning from uh, wood to metal. Uh, So there was an entire sort of shift in culture, in sport. Uh, You know, Tiger was, is also biracial. So there, so there's that, Um, you know, the, the equipment was changing the way that we consumed media was changing. I mean, absolutely everything was just different when Tiger Woods was doing his thing at the top of the of the sport, and I think that that probably is a big factor uh, as well. Because now every single person who maybe starts dominating is just going to be compared to Tiger, and there was nobody like him. Uh, very valid points, and I will say this just on a totally unrelated note: um, when everybody was on Twitter today, scrambling to see if this if these early reports were true, the LA County Sheriff put out a statement. I don't know who handles social media for the LA County Sheriff. The tweet that they sent out, I thought was a joke because this is a reputable organization and it looks like some person in grade six got a hold of the font machine on a weird background. It's a green a background with paint. <laughs> well, yeah. And it was like, really, that's the police department notice. I thought it was a joke when that came out ne- next time they have a, a celebrity or something like this, maybe come up with something that looks yeah. more believable than, <laughs> uh, than what they came out with. Cause, um, anyway, uh, Adam Stanley always appreciate, Oh, by the way, you, um, just before you go, you did talk today to, um, I want you to get this in. You talked today to Mackenzie mm-hmm. Hughes from Dundas. Uh, he was, he was commenting on this. He was in the middle of playing when this started to happen. What did he have to say? Yeah, so, you know, obviously McKenzie's the only Canadian who's playing the the big World Golf Championships event this week. So he told me, you know, it was a super eerie feeling. He was on the golf course. Uh, he, he and his playing partner, they immediately felt sick to their stomach. He said, praying it wasn't serious, immediately went to, oh my gosh, are we in a Kobe Bryant situation? Um, but for McKenzie, who's now a dad of, of, of two uh, sons, you know, Mackenzie told me it's not about his golf career. He's got a family. He's got a young, he's got young kids. And Max said, quote to me as a dad myself, that's what I thought about first. So, uh, you know, makes total sense. And, and even if guys who are technically Tiger Woods, competitors, you know, are thinking about him and his family first and not so much his golf career, then uh, I think we're starting to see this, you know, pivot to Tiger being, you know, a softer family man and um you know Mackenzie Hughes always great to to chat with and and you know was was super honest about how things were going down there Adam Stanley you can look for his byline it pops up all over the place writing about golf always does great stuff Adam thank you for doing this on short notice really appreciate it no worries happy to man uh we we look this story um we're going to be learning more about it as we go along and we heard as Adam pointed out there we heard the Authorities say they have no reason to believe there's any kind of alcohol or drugs or anything involved like that. And so we're going there and believing that this is an accident in the purest definition. 
let's hope that let, let's let's really hope that that's the case. Not that you know we don't we're not happy for an accident. I don't mean that, but it's um this 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 becomes monumentally more complicated a story if that's not what this is. But again, thankfully at this point, there is no reason to think it's anything other than that. And we probably wouldn't even raise that at this moment, but for the fact that we ha- that this has happened in the past, a different, different time, a different place, different circumstance for sure. Um, well, let's hope. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.